Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm your host, Adam Conover. You might also know me as the host of Adam Ruins Everything on True TV, which, to remind you, is back. You can find new episodes of the show every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on True TV. And you can find clips and full episodes of the show at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. And on that show, I talk to researchers, academics, and experts about the work that they do on this podcast. I talk to them for even longer, and we really go deep on what makes their work so important and fascinating. Today's guest I am so excited for. Her name is Nicole Hannah-Jones. She appeared on Adam Ruins the Suburbs, where she broke down the history of redlining in how we designed our suburbs and how it still affects us today. Um, Nicole's an award-winning investigative reporter who covers civil rights and racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine. Her work is truly fascinating, and she's an incredible guest. I I don't want to set it up too much. I just want you guys to hear this interview because I think you're going to love it as much as I enjoyed having it. We're so excited to have her join us today from New York, so please, let's just get to the interview. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. So um, this is such a complicated topic, but I, I think the core of it for me and what I've been so sort of stunned by the more and more I look into it is that I grew up uh, in a mostly white school in uh, on Long Island. Um, I got the same education about the history of the civil rights movement and of the history of segregation in America that most kids uh, did my age. You know, you get the bullet points of you know Jim Crow, Brown versus Bo- Board of Ed. Uh, they showed the dolls to the Supreme Court, you know, or whatever. All of, all of that stuff. And the message was, uh, we hey, we did it. America was segregated. Now it's integrated. Done. We can wipe our hands of it. Hey, we live in our uh, uh, happy, uh, happy integrated America. Um, And that story is uh, I've only learned surprisingly recently is is not true, uh, that that we're much more of a segregated society uh, on just the the basic, you know, numbers of people living in different neighborhoods that, or how segregated our schools are uh, than we than we would like to believe. That's uh, is that the case? Yeah, oh, I would say it depends on who the we is. Um, sure. Black and brown folks know the reality is that there's never been a real integration for large numbers of Americans. But I think many white Americans are surprised to learn this. You know, it's funny that you um, talk about what you learned in school about kind of race and the civil rights movement, because we, if you, if you think about how uh, the civil rights movement ends typically in our textbooks, it's with the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Right. So it actually doesn't end well, but we kind of gloss over right. what that meant that, you know, the, the main leader that was thrusting us forward on civil rights actually gets killed. Um, well. But we, we, we kind of judiciously move past that part. And and I think that actually tells us quite a bit about where things were going. We sort of treat it like Obi-Wan Kenobi dying in Star Wars. It's like, well, <laughs> he was struck down, but then he's gazing down at us from above and he's he's giving us the thumbs up and he's saying, hey, good job. You know, even though I, 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 uh, I'm a ghost now, you did it. And that's right. <laughs> yeah, but that's not obviously it's not nearly that rosy. Yeah, he was he was assassinated. Um you know, as you, uh, I know you as someone who, you know, uh, researches these topics, reports on them, um, you know, brings them to a, a wider audience. Uh, how do you go about investigating these topics? Well, um, sadly, I, I never run out of material. Um, there is no region of the country that is. Um, doing it right. There are certainly places that are doing it better than others. And typically what I'm looking for is I'm looking for places where I can show uh, some kind of official action and some kind of intent. Because I think the way that we largely talk about racial inequality today 
is that, yes, we know racial inequality exists, but we like to believe that no one's at fault, that it's all um, a a legacy of the past, that it's all historic, that um, it's all mostly about class and not race. And I try to really look at, um, at exposing the way that elected officials, policymakers, uh, both private and public citizens are actually still doing things that create and maintain inequality. Right. So uh, I, I'd love to talk about that because, um, you know, on our episode that we did on the suburbs and we did a segment on redlining um, and our goal was to show how, you know, even even for folks who, uh, you know, say, hey, I'm not doing anything uh, racist in my life. My community is very inclusive. We wanted to show how, you know, racist decisions that were made in the past still live with us today um, in the effect of, you know, how those, you know, sort of redlining policies from before, the way, the way they reverberate. Because um, uh, I, I, for me, that's that was an important component of my understanding, you know, and what I learned. Um, but you made the very excellent point when we uh, spoke to you developing that segment and we included on the show that, you know, we're not strictly talking about about policies of the past, that these are uh, there are still active policies that are affecting us today. Can you talk about some of those? Sure. I mean, I think what's so important about your show is, you know, for the average white American who, like you said, they, they haven't actively discriminated against anyone. It's very hard for them to understand responsibility for racial inequality or or even to understand, you know, why white neighborhoods tend to be nicer and have uh, more resources. And so laying out really uh, that past and how this was not accidental, but... Um, the disparities we see were were often very intentional and, you know, really coming down from the federal government down to the local level. I think that's important. But I think it's also important to realize that we, we've not necessarily stopped that. So you look at um, under the Obama administration, the Justice Department was getting record settlements from banks for discriminating um, against black and Latino homebuyers. They were charging black and Latino homebuyers higher interest rate for loans, even when those um, homebuyers were equally qualified with white homebuyers. They were much more likely to put those home buyers into subprime loans that then would be foreclosed upon. So we're still seeing very similar things. And I think one of the the most active ways that communities engage in discrimination is uh, through zoning and by not allowing affordable housing into their communities, by ensuring that they don't allow apartment buildings into their communities. Because the entire legacy that you lay out in the episode um, means that large swaths of black America, as well as Latino America, we're not allowed to accumulate the kind of wealth that allows them to buy homes. So black home ownership rates are below 50%. White home ownership rates are about 70%. That means if you have communities with no rental housing, you've automatically excluded half of the black population. Right. And I think that's often the way uh, that we see this this inequality perpetuated today. But communities will say, you know, we're not, we're not being discriminatory against people's race. We just don't want apartments in our community. Um, but all of this often is, is code and it operates the same way. Right. Yeah. It, it's, there's, it's like the two things working in tandem because uh, black and Latino Americans missed out on that huge, you know, uh, revolution in middle class wealth in the 40s and 50s. And it was like the biggest white affirmative action program probably in the history of our country, besides <laughs> slavery. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, putting aside slavery, we'll say that that was the biggest. I mean, yeah, I mean, that that is an entirely I mean, the you know, the episode that we could do itself on the way that, you know, the entire economy of, you know, America for the first hundred plus years was built on slavery and, right. you know, is is stunning. That's something that that is, you know, that's a topic that I want to research before I talk about it, because I know that the history of it is so rich. But then if we just start at the 40s um, and say, OK, there was this massive program post-World War Two that, like, it, you know, incentivized people to buy homes. It subsidized the buying of homes. It made homeownership, you know, achievable for uh, it was supposed to be for most middle class Americans. It turned out to be for white middle class Americans. Black and brown Americans missed out on it. Um, they missed out on this enormous amount of wealth generation that right. puts them at a different starting point. 
you know, today it's affected just what, yeah, the the housing uh, opportunities that are available to those different populations just because of the wealth that they have. But then at the same time, there's policies happening today that are then excluding uh, those populations even further uh, uh, right. from 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 getting a new foothold in our new housing economy. That's right. And, and we shouldn't also discount the fact that there still is a great deal of intentional, blatant discrimination. Um, I think we mentioned this in the episode that black and Latino uh, renters and homebuyers experience four million instances of discrimination when they're trying to find housing every year. So combine that with this, you know, you have this legacy, then you have ongoing policies that exacerbate racial inequality, and then you have simple discrimination that's happening. And you can see uh, why we have whole um, segments of communities that are cut off from the best opportunities. And that means, you know, good schools, neighborhoods that have good supermarkets, that have um, amenities, all of those types of things. Um, large, large numbers of black and Latino uh, Americans do not get access to those neighborhoods. And for many white Americans, all of this operates invisibly. So they believe that they worked for everything that they got. And it's not saying that they didn't work hard, but it's saying that they had some um, unearned advantages that were passed down that they didn't do anything wrong, but they need to recognize that the ability to buy into these neighborhoods, um, often that wealth is coming uh, or came at the expense of their black and white or black and Latino neighbors. Right. I, I mean, you know, I think of my own, you know, it, it just... From my own personal experience, you know, uh, to the extent that I'm successful now, a lot of that is because I had financial security in my 20s because I had my folks as a, you know, my parents as a backstop. Hey, even if my comedy career didn't work out, you know what I mean? I wasn't going to starve because, uh, you know, I had sort of a financial safety net in the, in the fact that I had, you know, financially secure parents uh, who I could turn to. They were financially secure because they are homeowners. They're homeowners because uh, they have... Of, uh, you know, their own wealth and stability because their parents were homeowners. And that goes back to, you know, their their parents were the benefit beneficiaries of of subsidies uh, in those earlier years. All those people, myself, my parents, my grandparents, all incredibly hardworking people. But they had a series of opportunities where they were able to take advantage of that hard work that not everyone in America uh, had access to. That's right. At least that's the way I look at it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and it's interesting because um what what U.S. Census data shows is that if you are black and middle class, you actually are more likely to live in a poorer neighborhood than if you're white and poor. And that has to do with wealth. So I have a, you know, I may make a good income, but because I don't have any family wealth, I can't buy into certain neighborhoods because I can't come up with a down payment for a house. Whereas a white American who makes a lot less money than me can buy into those neighborhoods because they can get the down payment from their parents or their grandparents. And that's kind of how the disadvantage then is passed on over time or advantages passed on over the time. And I think another thing that we, we often don't think about is this history of redlining where Black and uh, particularly black neighborhoods, but also integrated neighborhoods were redlined, meaning that the government was not going to subsidize loans in those neighborhoods, also drove property values. And what that meant was automatically white neighborhoods, the housing in white neighborhoods was valued uh, substantially higher than in black neighborhoods. And black neighborhoods, housing value was very low, even if the houses were identical. Well, once we uh, eliminated redlining and we passed the Fair Housing Act saying discrimination was illegal, we didn't reset uh, housing values everywhere. So right. you can still go into any community and housing values are driven by the race of the people who are there. So even if, uh, you know, my grandmother actually was able to buy a house, but her house never appreciated in value. And an identical house in a white neighborhood, you know, sometimes is worth 10 times, 20 times what uh, those people originally paid for it. My grandmother's house wasn't even worth twice what she paid for it by the time, you know, 30 years later. And so that's another way that these, you know, 50-year-old policies are still impacting wealth creation uh, and opportunity today. But we don't we don't tend to think about those things. Right. It's yeah, I mean, uh, when these laws were cha you know, if if a law is passed, hey, you know, you can't have separate drinking fountains anymore. Okay, great. Now everyone's, you know, getting water from the same source, right? right. Or whatever. But 
once you, if you do that for housing, well, the damage has already been done because the the policies already created a disparity, and white people get to continue to you know enjoy the fruits of that disparity, uh, That's right. uh, even though you know the you you can, you can no longer uh, uh, create it anew. It's still it's already happened. Where we already live in a society that's been shaped by those laws. That's right. All we did was outlaw the discrimination. We we as a country never said, well, what do we need to do to repair that damage? How do we catch black people up for all of these years? A first you know stolen labor during slavery, and then Jim Crow, which denied them the um, ability to create wealth and have opportunity. We never did anything to make up for that. We just simply said, okay, you can't do this. You can't discriminate anymore. And so that advantage that was accrued over the first, you know, 250 years of our country just just continued to go. And it's not saying that no white American lives in poverty or no white American has ever struggled, because of course, um, we know that that's not true. But the difference is uh, white Americans do not struggle because of their race. And yeah. not because of a systemic discrimination uh, having only to do with uh, the race that they were assigned at birth. And that's the key difference. And I want to talk about this, um, uh, something that you said very briefly in our on-camera interview that uh, on the show that really stunned me was that, you know, we think of segregation as being an issue in the South because that's where explicit laws were passed uh, that, you know, codified it. Uh, or, or you know, the most explicit laws were passed, but that doesn't mean that it didn't exist in the in the north. It just took a different form. Can you expand on that? Absolutely. So, for the vast history of our country, um, more than ninety percent of Black people in the United States lived in the South, and in many places, Black people outnumbered white people in the South. And so, the South responded to that by passing what we've come to know as Jim Crow laws. These were laws that, because of the large population, would constrain uh, every aspect of Black life. That wasn't necessary in the North because uh, until the turn of the century, um, most Northern cities had very, very small numbers of black folks. So you, you didn't need to pass all of these laws to contain the population. There just wasn't that that many. You know, 1% of the population, 5% of the population. But starting in the 1900s, you see this massive shift um, where black folks are leaving the South and suddenly half of all black Americans are now living um Outside of the South, and you have cities like Chicago, Detroit, New York, Newark, Philly. We can we can list them because we know what cities have experienced white flight. Who get these right. large numbers of Black Americans, and they don't have laws on the book to contain them. So the way that Black folks are contained in the North is through housing segregation. Um, this is where we see the creation of ghettos. So um, you you are able to accomplish everything. In the North, that you accomplished in the South with Jim Crow laws through housing segregation. Uh, if you don't want black kids in your school, they, they don't live in your neighborhoods to go to your schools. They don't live in the neighborhoods to go to the parks that you send your kids to or go to the restaurants. Uh, but with that said, um, there was also explicit uh, discrimination and segregation by law in the North, too. We just don't talk about that as much. There were certainly mm. – um, I've been researching – uh, school segregation, and there were laws in northern state constitutions barring black children from going to school with white children. Lots of cities uh, explicitly uh, maintained segregation of black children. And we know that hotels, restaurants, uh, certain parks um, outside of the South barred black people from um, taking part. So I, I think there we have this this myth that the race problem has been a southern problem, but the race right. problem has been a national problem just implemented in different ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the way I remember you putting it is that, hey, if you're living cheek and jowl with, you know, white people and black people living together and you want to discriminate, then you need to pass a law that says, okay, we're going to have two separate public accommodations that are right next to right. each other. You know, you can't go in this swimming pool. You have to, you can't use this water fountain. You have to use that water fountain because, uh, you know, that's the only way to do it. But if you live in a place where, hey, you just don't live together, we've just engineered things so that, uh, you know, we live here and you live here, then you don't need to make the laws because it's like, well, the kids are going to go to their own shitty swimming pool because that's the only one that's in their neighborhood. That's right. And the, so the form in the South is, is the kind that is more in the popular imagination because it's more explicit, you know, it's more explicit and it's more noxious to us for that reason. Yes. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't uh, that, that it didn't exist in other forms elsewhere. I, I was. Yeah, that, that was uh, really made me 
see it 180 degrees differently. You know, it's funny because uh, so in terms of both housing and schools, the South is is the most integrated region of the country for uh, black folks. And it, it, al- it always was for housing because, uh, again, when you had Jim Crow laws, it didn't matter if black folks lived in close proximity to you. They couldn't go to any of the institutions that you used. Um, schools, of course, were completely segregated in the South, but because it was a uh, mandated by law, when the Supreme Court outlawed it, it was very easy to bring that system down. It was much harder to bring down school segregation in the North, where there was this veneer of deniability. Um, it, it often wasn't by law. It was often because of housing segregation. And so we've actually made very, very little progress on integrating schools outside of the South. Um, though the racial animus that drove that segregation, and I would say that that continues to drive that segregation is the same no matter what part of the country you're in. There's this old adage that says uh, in the South, you could uh, live wherever you wanted, but you better not go too high if you're black. And in the North, um, you could go as high as you want, but you better not live too close. And I think that that is is what we still largely see today. The most segregated uh, cities in the country, both in terms of housing and schools, are all in the North, and they almost are all in uh, what we consider liberal, uh, progressive blue cities. Right. Uh, I have here in my notes that uh, New York City is the third most segregated city in the country. Is that correct? Yes, residentially. And it has one of the most segregated school systems in the country as well. And of course, you talk to any white New Yorker and and they believe in integration and they say they believe in equality, but they are willing to sustain uh, one of the most unequal cities in the entire nation. Well, and it's almost hard to believe. I mean, I I lived in New York for for ten years in in the city, and and you know I I you know still call myself a New Yorker in many ways, and it doesn't at least to me as a white New Yorker it doesn't feel segregated because hey you're walking around and oh you know hey everybody's I I think partially it's because people you know move you know brush by each other on the subway, subway. you know everyone yes. everyone rides the subway everyone go you know everyone goes to to Herald Square to go to Macy's or whatever right. you know um uh, everyone sort of has 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 access to a lot of the same public life. It doesn't appear to be a segregated city until you actually look at the statistics and where people live and, uh, you know, where the apartments are and what kinds of buildings they live in and what sort of schools that they're going to. Uh, we're we're sort of able to at least you know white New Yorkers are able to maintain this fiction that it's a, a perfectly uh, integrated city. Yeah, I think what we do here is we conflate diversity with um, integration, and those are huh. two very different things. So we are you know one of the most diverse cities in the world, absolutely, but we are highly segregated. And 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 I always say I do think it it is particularly the subway that makes. New Yorkers feel like they are in an integrated city. But I say if you ride the subway at certain times, that is the best way to gauge how segregated we are. If you ride it early in the morning when people are going to work, and if you rode it end to end, or if you ride it right around the time when everyone's going home from work end to end, what you'll see is uh, the people who get on and off the train reflect the segregation of the neighborhoods, that Uh. you will pick up uh, a bunch of black folks, then you know, some Latino folks will get on, then white folks, and then they're all on the train together as they as they make it through, like, um, the western part of Brooklyn and the central part of Manhattan. And then it changes again as everyone uh, is, is getting off and going back home. So I think the, the subway, depending on the time you ride it, can make America, uh, New York seem like this beautiful melting pot. But if you ride it at the right times, you'll see how starkly segregated the city really is. Wow. Yeah. What a good point. I mean, I would get on the yeah. If, if you get on the the L train at, at Lorimer, just two stops from Manhattan, you're like, oh wow, what a melting right. pot. But it's because you didn't get on in uh, Canarsie, where where maybe there's a totally different makeup because right. all those people have already gotten on the train. You're you're exactly. only the third white person to get on. That's right. Man, th- and that reminds me of of honestly growing up on on Long Island because. Yeah, I was able to live under that same fiction that, you know, there was there was one uh, black kid in my entire, uh, you know, in my grade sort of who I went with, you know, elementary school up through high school. And, uh, you know, I remember going I remember thinking about that going, why is that? Ah, I don't know. I guess just black folks don't like to live in this town. I don't know. They, you know, right. they, uh, you know, I didn't. 
have reason to give it thought. I, I thought, I thought, oh, maybe it's just a matter of preference or something. And then I remember as a young, you know, as a teenager riding the Long Island Railroad into, uh, into the city and realizing that, like, oh, at this stop, this is where all the black people get on and off the train. Right. Why? Why is that? And it, but it was never. I was never confronted with uh, the need to make more sense of it than that. I was just like, oh well, that's just. There's no law that's right. unjust that says this is the way things are. This just happens to be the way things are, and and maybe that's okay. I I, I didn't have to deal with it as a problem. Yeah, I think that's really common, and I think that's because largely for white Americans, race operates invisibly. Um, most times, white Americans don't have to think about what it means to have a race and what it means to be treated a certain way because of your race. There are very few circumstances where white Americans are in situations where they are the racial minority, and certainly not where they are a racial minority and everyone who... Um, wields power over them are people of color. So I, I think that that's really common. And also what the research shows is that uh, what white Americans consider diversity is actually not that diverse. So, you know, they'll say they, their kid goes to a very diverse school and maybe there's three or four people of color in a classroom of 30. In a city like New York, that's actually not diverse. We know that New York City is a minority white city, so that's actually not very diverse. But for white Americans who maybe came from a place like you came from where there was like one kid in the whole school or hardly any uh, people of color at all, then that feels very diverse to them. But of course, to a person of color, it would feel extremely white. And people of color right. have to think about their race all the time. Yeah, it's it's a, it's striking how rare that experience is for for a white person to feel like they're in the minority. I actually do a joke in my stand up act about how the reason that uh, reviews for Chinese restaurants in Chinatown are are so low is because they're all written by white people who feel like they're like the restaurant is racist against white people because for the first time <laughs> yeah. they're in the minority and they're like, wait, I don't speak the language and and you know I'm being you know it's like such a foreign experience. Yeah. Uh, for them to have that experience, um, but but even and that's so that's such a good point you make about diversity as well because you know even if you say okay well hey I like diversity um, you know I'm a white person but I don't you know I don't want to be just around white people I want there to be some diversity in my neighborhood um, we don't want it enough to actually create change right and and this is kind of the key difference so. Black Americans have to have, quote unquote, diversity or integration if they want to actually have access to uh, the full opportunities of any city. So it is a necessity. Um, I mean, you want your streets paved, your neighborhood probably shouldn't be all black. When you want a dog run, your neighborhood probably shouldn't be all black. If you want good grocery stores, if you want good schools, you have to have proximity to whiteness to get those things in this country. But for white Americans, diversity is a bonus. You know, it's like nice to have, but not necessary. And in the end, wow. um, I've talked to so many parents. I, I write a lot about school segregation. And I've talked to so many white parents who were like, oh, I really, really wanted a diverse school for my kid. But in the end, well, I ended up putting them in, you know, nearly all white school just because, you know, it had everything else that I wanted. So it's like, right. you know, you're they're almost always going to trade that off. It is it is just not a necessity. Um, and it's not because the reason why this nation implemented segregation was because it was of great benefit to white people. And it still is. Well, I'm here talking to journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones. We will be back in just a moment, so please stick around. How's it going, everyone? I'm Oliver Wang. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. We have a brand new show on the Maximum Fun Network that we'd love to share with you. It's called Heat Rocks. Morgan, we should probably explain what a heat rock is. It is a banger, a fire track, true fire. Right. Dope album. Each episode, we will bring on a special guest to join us to talk about one of their heat rocks. It might be a musician. A writer. Maybe a scholar. I mean, I would have been happy to just talk to you about your heat rocks, but this is a different show. Yeah. So. I think people might enjoy hearing maybe the guests instead. To do that, you'll have to go to MaximumFun.org. So if you want to talk about hot music, you should check us out. Heat Rocks. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to New York Times investigative reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones. Uh, well, I I'd like to talk about 
school segregation um, specifically because, you know, on our show, we sort of tried to show how housing segregation leads to school segregation. Um, but, you know, we don't spend as much time talking about that problem in itself. Um, you know, again, I'm so struck by how our national sort of story or maybe even fairy tale of school integration differs from the reality. It's it's really stark, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, one, I think in general, um, our country doesn't do a very good job of teaching history uh, overall. And when it comes to the history of, of race and racism and, and racist policy, we, we do just a, really a terrible, uh, neglectful job. So we learn about Brown v. Board of Education, and then we learn, you know, the Supreme Court strikes it down, and we all moved on um, to an integrated future together. And any any uh, racial imbalance we might see in schools is just uh, by choice or accident or incidental or having to do with the fact that black people are more likely to live in poverty. But that's not actually the truth. I mean, we we fought uh, desegregation every step of the way, and we didn't try very hard. Um, we only, as a nation, with you know the courts, Congress, and the executive branch trying to enforce desegregation for about uh, 20 years. And in that 20 years, we actually made remarkable progress. Um, the achievement gap between black and white students was the narrowest that it's ever been. It, we can't narrow it to that point now. Um, we saw the South completely remade from the most segregated part of the country for black students to the most integrated, and it still holds that um, that status. So when we tried for that short period, um, we were able to, to really alter the landscape of uh, education for this country, but we never really wanted to do it, and our attention span to this was very short. And if you ask people about school integration now, particularly white people, the first thing that they'll say is, what about busing? Um, there's a sense that it was busing kids that ruined desegregation, but in fact, most kids were never bused for desegregation. And what ruined uh, desegregation and integration was the unwillingness of most white Americans to do it. Yeah, I, yeah. It's uh, you know when I think about the you know the images we have about you know desegregation of schools, you know the civil rights movement. It's you know it's the guards walking the the kids in, right. and it's it, it's that sort of like we are making a full court press on a national level to compel this, and that is. If you imagine anything close to that happening today, it's it's yeah, it's sort of almost left our DNA as something that we're making that strong of an effort for. Oh, we're not making any really any national <laughs> effort. And and I think what's what's important is to think about that because I, these images are are you know they they're they're in our heads. We we actually don't even question them. But if you think about what it says about race in this country and our um national repulsion to integration that these were children who were having to be escorted by law enforcement into a school um, because white parents so opposed black children sitting in classrooms with their kids. And I think we kind of gloss over that because it's just, you know, so emblazoned in our in our head. We, we've seen these images so many times that we don't question them. But, you know, Ruby Bridges, whose birthday uh, just passed, is 63 years old. She was five years, or excuse me, she was six years old, and U.S. Marshals had to escort her through a white mob um, in order for her to be the only black child in a white school. And every white parent pulled their child out of that classroom. She was taught by a single teacher in an empty classroom, and she had to be under guard of law enforcement. So I think that we need to own that and understand that that anger and hatred and racism did not simply go away because the Supreme Court handed down a ruling and that we're still dealing with the remnants of that today. So when we see that schools still remain segregated, that black children are actually more segregated now than they've been since the 1970s, that that is the legacy that we've inherited. And those same racial fears and that same animosity, though we would never openly say it, or usually not openly say it, it still is driving uh, the decisions of so many parents. 
Right. So many of the people in that mob or the children's of the people in that mob are, are still alive That's right. and <laughs> making decisions. And, you know, my, my and I'm also struck by the fact that, you know, my my dad uh, grew up in Miami-Dade County in Florida um, and told me, you know, when we had our you know, unit in high school about the 60s where they say, go interview your parents about what it was like. Mm. And, you know, his school was forcibly integrated and he had stories. I believe there I, there was a riot and, you know, uh, you know, it, it became a bit violent. Um, uh, but, you know, in order to have the school be integrated. Yes. Um, but, you know, uh, then he moved to Long Island uh, where I grew up and, uh, you know, nobody was nobody was uh, working that hard to integrate my school, despite the fact that it was not an integrated school. Right. Um, well, we learned as a nation, we learned from the example of the North, which was don't be explicit about it. Use housing. Right. And so in the North, you know, as black people started moving into cities, White people just moved out. They just moved out of the cities. And we can all name white suburbs that ring every northern city. And so you didn't have to worry about a court forcing um, your school to integrate if there were no black kids in the city that you lived in. Then your schools could remain white um, and you could have this uh, veneer that you weren't doing anything out of racism because because there were no black kids. And that's largely uh, the way that the North has gotten around integrating schools. And we know that now. I mean, the New York City public schools are about, excuse me, 14 percent white, but the city is more than twice that. And you can look at Chicago. Um, I think Chicago public schools are 10 percent white. You can look at Philly. You can look at all of these cities. Uh, Washington, D.C., I think is 44 percent white, but the schools might be 11 percent white, where white Americans uh, just simply withdrew rather than uh, allow their children to go to schools with significant numbers of black children. And that's why I brought up Ruby Bridges, because I really think this was a six-year-old child (laughs) carrying a little briefcase wearing like white bobby socks. And um, parents fought, like fought viciously to keep this little child out of the school and um, a couple years ago, I wrote about my my own daughter's school. My daughter is seven at the time; she was four. That was undergoing an integration battle right here in Brooklyn. And I can tell you, those parents were very angry. And a lot of the things that they said, I imagine, were things that parents said way back then too. Right, and and it's shocking to hear those conversations happening, but they're still happening. I mean, I I was first introduced to your work by the uh, the two part This American Life episode from a year or two ago, which contains audio of, right. of, you know, parents that are that angry. And for folks who haven't heard it, it's the best it's the best thing that show has ever done. It was really uh, it, really a stunning uh, piece of journalism um, uh, be, because you yeah, you it's one of those things that our our national story is this doesn't happen in America. And the truth is, it it it, it still happens every day. Absolutely. That episode of This American Life, by the way, is named after the Norman Rockwell painting of Ruby Bridges <laughs> trying to integrate uh, that school. It's called The Problem We All Live With. So we actually paid tribute to her uh, with that that episode. Uh, well, let's talk about the the benefits of school integration um, and what do students miss out on by by not going to integrated schools? So I'm going to talk about this in in two ways. There's what black students miss out on, um, black and Latino students, and then there's what white students miss out on. So clearly um, what the the data shows, what history shows, is that black students segregated away from white students have never received equal resources uh, for a single day in this country. And so for black students, um, integration means that they are giving access to the same types of public schools and education that white children get. It is absolutely an imperative uh, for equality because we just have been unwilling to devote those resources when black students are are segregated. Um, Also, if you read the Brown v. Board of Education ruling, which every time I give a talk, I ask people to raise their hand if they've read the ruling, and it's always a small minority. Most of us actually haven't read the ruling and don't really know what it says. It wasn't about resources. It was about citizenship, understanding that education 
is primarily about building citizens. Of uh, It is an engine of democracy. And when you were separating an entire class of children, um, that those children could never be, black children could never be full citizens as long as they were separated from white children. Mm. Um, so that's really what um, integration does for black children. It opens up opportunities. There's long-term data that shows that black children who have access to integrated schools are more likely uh, to to live out of poverty as adults. They're more likely to graduate high school. They're more likely to go to college. They live longer. They're healthier. They're less likely to go to jail. So there are very real effects uh, for black children. But what we don't talk about enough is the benefit for white children. So one, I think it should be clear that all decades of data and research shows that it does not harm the achievement of white students. Their test scores don't go down. Their achievement levels don't go down. So it doesn't harm them. But what it does is actually help them. Um, we know, at least in an abstract way, that, it, that, that diversity is good um, because it helps us think in different ways. It, um, when, when you have a group of people who all have the same experiences, it is more difficult to solve a problem because they're all trying to solve it the same way. So diversity actually is, is stimulating intellectually. It is stimulating socially. It helps white Americans prepare for uh, a world that is a global world. It builds empathy. So it actually is very good for white children too. And I think um, for those of your listeners who who saw, maybe saw Hidden Figures, I think the most powerful message out of Hidden Figures, the movie, which of course is about the black women scientists at NASA who had to fight uh, so much discrimination just to be able to use their minds to help our country, um, is that there are so many black and Latino children who could you know, we don't know. The, the the cure for cancer could be locked away in one of these children's heads who have never had a science book, who are going to schools without a science lab, who are going to schools where they're never taught biology or chemistry or never taught by a certified teacher, that we actually are hurting our entire country by segregating uh, large numbers of our children away from opportunity and away from a proper education and away from ourselves. I was one of those kids who was bused into white schools starting in the second grade as part of a desegregation order. And I can tell you, those white children definitely benefited from having me in their classroom <laughs> as well. It was not it was not a one-way thing. I had a lot to offer, and I needed uh, the opportunity to go to good schools in order to become what I became. Right. Um, at the same time, and, and I uh, don't doubt any of those points, I, I wonder if sometimes we give short shrift to how difficult uh, integrating ourselves and, you know, living in a diverse society is like it, it also has unique challenges that uh, I, I worry sometimes that our our notion that uh, diversity is always a uh, sort of happy, smiley affair and not right. something that comes with its own difficulties is, uh, you know, when we're not honest with ourselves about those difficulties, it makes it harder to take the step to actually do it. You know, it is it is sometimes difficult to uh you know like be in close quarters with people who are who are different from you in some ways absolutely i i i think that's an excellent point and i think that's one of the reasons why we gave up on desegregation so quickly because we wanted it to be easy and painless and i think we still do and and it's it's not going to be we have a long history in this country um we put a tremendous amount of effort into building segregation and inequality i mean part of what your episode touches on is just the sheer amount of federal uh policy and um when you think about the amount of uh, minds and effort and money that went into building segregation, we've been willing to do almost nothing to undo it. And we just want it to be easy and everyone to get along. But often, everyone getting along means that uh, people of color have to have to assimilate and um, have to become, you know, adapt the ways of white Americans in order for integration to work. And that's not really... Um, that's not just, and that's not the way that it should be. So it, it isn't going to be easy. It's, it's often going to be messy. It's going to be challenging. People are going to want to give up. But if we really, you know, from the moment the English landed on these shores in the early 1600s, 
you know, within 12 years, they had imported Africans to be um, enslaved. There were already people living here who were uh, Native people. So we have been a multiracial country from our beginning, and we've always struggled with how to make that work. And I think that that is our eternal struggle, is we always need to be working on how can we become a more fair, just, multiracial country, because that is truly who we are as Americans. Right. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you still have optimism on that point. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, or that you believe that to be our, uh, you know, who we truly are, despite our actions to the contrary. Um, but, uh, you know, it, yeah, I guess we we don't often acknowledge that, you know, it takes it takes sacrifices and that like, you know, white Americans might need to give something up in terms of, of comfort or ease in order to live up to those values. Absolutely. I mean, I think my work in the last five years has been dedicated uh, almost entirely to that question, mm. to to trying to reach, you know, people who ostensibly believe in the things that I'm writing about, who believe in equality, who believe in a just society, but also don't want to sacrifice anything to get it. And one of the things I always say, particularly when it comes to school segregation, um, but really it applies to most areas of American life, is you can't want equality and advantage for your own child. Those two things are in conflict with each other because equality means uh, someone has to give up that advantage for everyone else to be in the same place. And I think that is where we always stop. So it's very easy to have those values in the abstract. It's very hard to actually live those values. And I don't know that we ever get to a place where um, most white Americans are willing to give up anything um in order for us to be who we really should be. Well, yeah. Can, can you expand on that a little bit? Because it does seem, yeah, if you like, what do you mean by advantage? Because, yes, it seems to be the most, you know, violating thing in the world to tell a parent, well, you shouldn't strive for the best life for your child. That would seem to be to many people uh, a fundamental value, but are you? Is there a way you parse out the term advantage there, or or, or what exactly? Well, what do you I'm mean? saying is so. And let's talk specifically in the realm of public education. You know, we're a capitalist society, so if um, you can pay to get into whatever type of school that you think is best for your child, then that's fine. But when we're talking about public education. We're talking about a public good which means no matter where you come from, no matter um, what advantages you may have personally uh, or disadvantages, we will all go into the schoolhouse together and we will receive the same education. We know that that's not the case. So when you have parents who are very proud public school parents, but they're able to get their kids into uh, advantaged public schools and they are fighting for their kids' public school to have more than other kids' public schools, um, that to me, is fundamentally unfair and fundamentally undemocratic. And that's my challenge. So, so for instance, in New York, um, I made the decision to enroll my daughter in a segregated, high-poverty school because I believe that I can't fight for equality, but then when it comes to my child, I'm going to put her... She has every advantage already. She mm-hmm. doesn't. I don't have to give her, steal this, this one, too, right? This one advantage, which is supposed to be for the common good, that I am going to take that from her, too. Where for my daughter, if she doesn't get into the absolute best public school, she has every other resource that I can make up for that. Before the poor child who is living in uh, public housing, school is the only advantage. School is the only thing that they can have. And we as advantaged parents um, are going to take that, too. I just think that that's unjust. And so I understand that it it does feel unnatural to ask a parent not to fight for every crumb of advantage. But what I'm saying is if you have, you know, nine of 10 advantages, I feel like this is one that you can that you can give up a little bit and your child is going to be just fine. Um, That's the difference The 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 kid in the housing project who's forced to go into a failing public school is not going to be just fine. Your child who. You're likely not going to put in a failing school, but may not be, you know, in the top high school in the state. It's still going to be fine. Um, yeah. We want equality, but we don't want to give up anything for that, which means we really don't want equality. And I understand that I'm I'm challenging people and I'm asking people something that is unnatural. 
But then I'm saying, well, let's not be hypocrites then. then the, let's just acknowledge that you really don't want equality. Then let's just say that. But let's not pretend that that's what you want, because if you want that, you cannot sustain a system that is so unequal and say, oh, those schools aren't good enough for my child, but those schools are good enough for someone else's children. Um, it, that's basically what you're saying. And I'm saying I'm not going to let you just pretend then that you're fighting for justice because you're actually not. Right. Well, it sounds like I'm just trying to figure out how to integrate this idea, <laughs> integrate uh, this idea with, you know, the, the idea of still, uh, you know, because people feel such a primal need to fight for their own children. But maybe it's a matter of saying rather than I'm going to, you know, uh, get, try to get advantage for my child by making sure they're in the best school. Maybe it's a matter of saying more. I'm going to make sure that the public school that they're in is the best school it can be and thus try to get advantage for my child and all the other children <laughs> who go to the school, perhaps. Well, one, yes, except what we know is that uh, advantaged parents are putting their kids in advantaged public schools. So right. their public schools are the best that they can be because every other kid in there yes. has middle class parents um, and are often white. What I'm saying, so a good example, I what I write is that um, inequality is both individual and systemic, that we make individual choices that drive and maintain it, but we also fight systemic changes. So when I was talking about my daughter's school, my daughter's school is um, nearly all black and Latino, nearly every child is poor. A mile away was a majority white, very wealthy public school. The That school was overcrowded. My daughter's school was under-enrolled. The New York City Department of Education decided they were going to rezone um, a large number of those white parents from their overcrowded school into my daughter's school. And it was actually their neighborhood school. They just didn't want to go there. Those parents fought that. So this wasn't even about their individual child. This was fighting a systemic change that immediately had those parents come to my daughter's school. Our school would have been, the poverty rate of our school would have been cut in half. It would have immediately been an integrated school. It would have immediately been a more resource school. But those parents fought that too. So I think that um, we use our individual child and feeling like we need to bestow individual advantage on our own children as an excuse, but we also fight systemic changes that would actually help uh, even the playing wow. field. Because in the end, I don't think we really want the playing field to be equal. I think that you want your child to get into Harvard, and you know there's only so many slots. So the fewer p kids who have the same resources as your kid to get into Harvard is better for you. What I'm saying is then let's just acknowledge that truth and let's acknowledge that that is unjust and undemocratic and that the very same people in this country have always had that advantage will then keep that advantage. Well, yeah, I mean, these are these are uh, uh, presumably white liberals in Brooklyn who are who are r making this campaign. Uh, Absolutely. That's. <laughs> that is a really that is a really stark uh, indictment, and uh, it's not one that I uh, can argue with. <laughs> um, uh, um, so you recently had a cover piece in the in the New York Times Magazine that um, I started reading uh, just before this interview about how there are actually schools that are uh, towns that are actively now uh, having their school districts secede from the larger school district in order to segregate their schools actively as as a trend in America. Is this the case? Yes. Yeah, so we are seeing um, this story was based in the South, but it's happening all over the country where white communities that are um, part of larger, diverse school systems are trying to break away so that they can form their own school systems. And again, it's that uh, classic northern style um, segregation, which is um, you can't do it by law anymore, but if you have communities with no white or black or brown children in them, then you have no black or brown children in your schools. So this is kind of the, the latest uh, iteration of um, a long history of, of white communities trying to do whatever they could to avoid um, being in schools with large numbers of black and Latino kids. And I, and I should be clear um, – None of these communities are saying we don't want a single black or brown kid in our school, but they do want a limited number. They want to be able to have a, a palatable ratio. And the problem with that is, of course, is um, these communities are also often wealthier. So they're taking tax dollars away uh, from 
public school systems, and they're leaving the school systems that they leave behind, then are poorer and more segregated and less able to provide for the children in that school. And I would argue um, that that is, you know, we are becoming increasingly balkanized. And there's new research that's showing that um, not only is income inequality growing to the levels that we haven't seen since the Great Depression, but also uh Wealthy people are less and less likely to be living in proximity to lower income people, to be having their children in schools with lower income people. And I just don't think that's the society that we want, where those with the most resources are just clustered away from other Americans. Um, There's nothing inherently bad about someone who is poor. The only thing that it means when you're poor is that you don't have money. You still are a worthy human being. You still have things to contribute to society. And, and I think we, uh, uh, we stigmatize lower income people and the sense that we need to remove ourselves from them is very problematic. Yes. And, and it's, and it's one of those, uh, you know, it's, it's even more explicit than, than the problem with race in America, because at least most people have gotten the message, hey, don't, don't say things that are explicitly racist. But, right. but we haven't learned that about, you know, if you look at at class or income through the same prism as as race, you people the uh, the things that people feel free to say are are much more overt and much more shocking. Absolutely, and and you know, it is perfectly legal to discriminate against poor people. That hmm. that is not against the law. Civil rights law does not uh, deal with income. Um, and we know that poverty is a proxy. So poverty, talking about poverty is a way to talk about race right. without having to talk about race. And one of the things that I heard over and over um, when I was attending the meetings about my daughter's school was parents were saying, you know, white parents, well, it's not that they didn't want their kids around black kids. They just didn't want their kids around poor kids. Right. It just so happened that all the poor kids they were talking about were black. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, you know, we are much more comfortable with race or a class because uh, anyone can be poor and you can at least we believe you can transcend your class if you if you start out poor you don't have to remain poor and of course uh race you cannot do that but in this country those two things are just very intertwined and even poverty is racialized right but the myth of america is that if you're if you're poor it's your own fault because it's a classless society and you can you know dig your way out or at best if you're poor you're lazy and thus if poverty becomes a, a proxy for race then it becomes a a proxy racial judgment as well absolutely um, well, <laughs> um, I, I guess on that uplifting note, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, you know, uh, uh, do you, uh, <laughs> do you see any, uh, do you see the glimmers of reasons for optimism? Not that we should have an optimism outlook, but do you see, uh, what, what do you see if anything that is encouraging a and B for the, you know, a uh, person at home, let, let's, you know, just speaking to the white portion of our audience who is hearing about these issues and uh, is, you know, as struck by them as I am, uh, what can they be doing individually to address them, if anything? What Or, <laughs> you know, what, what ask would you make of them at all? Yeah, so, I mean... I'm a student of history, and it's interesting uh, how you frame the question. There, there was this Swedish sociologist who came uh, to study America right before the civil rights movement, and he coined it uh, the American Dilemma, which is that Americans have this great ideal of equality and that it is fundamental to how we define ourselves, but we are also willing to sustain uh an amazing amount of inequality at the same time that we hold the American dilemmas that we hold these two contradictory uh, values. And I think that that is it. I think we want to believe that we are a fundamentally democratic egalitarian society, which then requires us to deny that we were a society built on the enslavement of other people and the genocide of other people. And that for most of the history of our country, we denied uh, basic citizenship rights to those people. Um, this is this is who we are. So I, 
I think that uh, racial inequality is embedded in the DNA of our country, that we will never be rid of it because it is who we are. And so when I talk about ideals, I am trying to get Americans to actually think about, um, white Americans to actually think about the values they hold and what is the reality. Uh, I am not an optimistic person on this. Uh, my work, uh, my life's work, my lifetime of studying this would have me have no reason to be optimistic, mm. except I think a lot about, you know, my father was born um, in the 1940s in Greenwood, Mississippi, which is in the Delta, uh, into a family of sharecroppers. He had no legal citizenship rights in that state. I am a reporter at the New York Times Magazine. I went to integrated schools. Um, so clearly progress has been made. And I think that uh, if I leave us with the sense that no progress can be made, then white Americans can sit back and believe that they don't have to try to do anything right. because nothing will change. So, yes, we can move forward. Do I think things will ever be right? I do not. Do I think that we can make progress? Absolutely. The biggest thing that I think white Americans can do, um, put your kids in your neighborhood schools. Don't fight systemic changes. You know, I understand if you don't, if you have a choice, you're not going to put your child in a school uh, that is failing. No one who has choice will put their child in a school that's failing. But that's understanding that there are children in those schools, which means those parents don't have a choice. So when uh, there are efforts to actually make the system more equal, instead of using your power to fight that, Use your power on the side of what is right and try to make the system more equal. And that's what every um, parent can do. I, I have to thank you so much for the uh, for the interview. It's it's uh, I, I don't know that I've done an interview that's given me more to think about. So I, I really uh, I really appreciate you coming on to talk to us about this. Thank you. And thank you for spending so much time on the, the subject. Of course. Well, thank you once again to Nicole for coming on the show. Uh, you could knock me over with a feather after that interview. Um, I, I, <laughs> I don't even know what to say about it. The way Nicole talks about these issues is so pierces right to the core that she just makes them so impossible to ignore. So I hope it gave you guys as much to think about as it did me. And that is it this week for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is Shara Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend about us and subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I happen to use Overcast. I think it's a good one, but you could also use Downcast or even Stitcher. People still using Stitcher? I don't know. Maybe. If you do, that's fine with us. But don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. And Adam Ruins Everything is back every Tuesday night on True TV at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. People in Central, you don't need me to tell you that. When you hear a time now, you know to bring it back an hour for yourselves because, hey, you've been there before. You know the Daily Show comes on at 10 p.m. where you live. You don't need them to specify every time. But I do, just to let you know we haven't forgotten you. 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central for my folks west of the Mississippi. Is that the dividing line? I don't know. It's somewhere. Who even knows? Um, but if you're in Central, you know I'm talking about you. And you can find clips and full episodes. Shara's shaking her head at me. You can find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. Until then, we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks. Bye-bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.